Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion video podcast. I'm Jenny Grand, the editorial's editor. I'm Bobby Set, editorial writer and columnist. And we've had kind of a big week. It was election week, but it was a primary election week, <laughs> primary runoff election week, which is very small and narrow. But we also had city council races, uh, municipal races across the state. And, um, you know, we talked last week about the endorsements and some we didn't endorsing say we thought they'd go to a runoff. So some of the city races that didn't have runoffs, people won outright, we thought would have a runoff. And then some went to a runoff that we thought would win. At. So no one really knows how to predict these things, right? Is that what this comes yeah, down uh, to every election? Yeah. So, I think that know, says it says something about District One, in particular, um, Vanessa Hall Harper. They, she's strong up there. Yep. Six, was it sixty five, sixty six percent with two other contenders? And that was one that we didn't make a, an endorsement with, thinking that it may go to a runoff. So, you know, we can't predict things. And then that was the same with, uh, you know, we endorsed Lori Decker Wright. We still strongly endorse her. Um, and uh, she just barely got right under, you know, you have to have 50%. I think she had like 49.8 or something like that. So she's in a runoff, but you know, those, those races are still really low. I was really surprised. Um, yeah. The, the race with Krista Patrick, which is the North, Northeast side of town. It only, only 1600 people voted in that. So when you think of the amount of people that are eligible and only 1,600 cast a vote, I mean, that's just, that's really low. And, but the highest was District 8, South Tulsa. They yeah. had, I looked it up, what was the final? It was like 7,500 ballots. And Phil Lakin won that pretty, by a pretty wide margin. But, um, but even 7,500 is, is when you think of the entirety of South Tulsa and all the residents that are eligible to vote, still very low. And um, that's always still a little disconcerting because people are so uh, affected by local matters, you know, like sales tax and, you know, you want to know why you don't have your pothole fixed? Well, that's a city issue or utility rates or where, I mean, in all these things that affect us on a daily basis, our city council is supposed to be there and yet so few people vote. It's mm -hmm. sad. But then we have the state races, and those are the runoffs. And the the big one was the state superintendent. I mean, Ryan yep. Walters is a controversial person, and the GOP are, is putting him forward as the candidate to face off against uh, the Democrat Jenna Nelson. So they, you know, they have about the same credentials. They're mm -hmm. both teachers. Uh, Jenna was teacher of the year. I think Ryan Walters was a finalist for teacher of the year. Um, I might need to double check that. Neither have been superintendent, but they could not be more opposite. So it'll be very interesting that their views on public education and challenges are completely different. So yes. we'll see how that plays out in the general. But I point out, there's a straight party voting in Oklahoma, and that is a strong obstacle for um, any might. It was an obstacle for them for the Republicans during the Democrat 
control and it's it's that way for Democrats with with the Republican control because so many people just go in and vote one way. So yeah. um, what struck out as you, with you on those results? Um, well, first things first on that superintendent's race, um, I believe in November, public education is on the ballot across the board, not just in the superintendent's race, but also in the governor's race. So what direction are we going to take? Uh, how seriously are people looking at this? Are they going any deeper than a few catchphrases? Or are they really concerned about where the direction of public schools are going? I think that's on the ballot. How well that gets communicated, we'll see. Um, it's a lot is at stake for the state in terms of not just the fate of its students, but also in how well Oklahoma is presented to employers that are here in the state and employers that will want to maybe come here. Uh, another thing that I was looking at last time was what I called the stit ballot. Now, he had some candidates that he liked, that he uh, supported, you know, John O'Connor as attorney general, he was wanting to get him elected again, or not elected again, because he was appointed. Uh, Sean Roberts for labor commissioner, and then of course, Ryan Walters for state superintendent. So far, he's batting 333 um, with uh, Roberts not making it. Uh, voters chose the incumbent labor commissioner, John O'Connor losing to Gettner Drummond. But I think they're going to be looking at this because how high profile schools are right now from our school board elections all the way to now, it has been like the cultural culture war flashpoint and that comes to a head with the state superintendent's race so i don't know if the governor's office is going to be looking at this like no oh, we only got one of the three they're probably thinking putting all their eggs in that ryan walters basket um just because of the philosophical argument that they're making about what direction they think education should take in oklahoma and it, I noticed that today there was a, bo a board of a state board of education meeting, and I remember when I covered those, like no one knew who the state board members were. I was, you know, me, uh, maybe the AP, and maybe the Oklahoman would be in attendance. <laughs> and today we sent two reporters. It was a packed house. I had people contacting me wanting to know how they could reach those appointed state board members. I'm like, you know what? I I've, I've never even wondered because that's never been an issue before because it's been. But because it's been such a, they've put themselves in such controversial decision-making roles that now people are really paying attention. And it's, when I looked at Twitter, it was packed out, like standing yeah. room only. They were going to review the, um, their downgrading of accreditation to Mustang and Tulsa Public Schools. And then they also had on the uh, agenda rules for banning transgender kids from certain bathrooms you know, um, those are those cultural war things. Uh, yep. What's coming up, though, is a lot of emergency certifications. We're going to set another record this year. So those mm -hmm. used to be, and I remember having to cover those like 25 years ago. And if you had an emergency certified teacher, it was like an hour-long presentation. You had to really prove to, you know, I remember Sandy Garrett and her board, and now they don't even bother doing that. It's just, there's just thousands of them. And, and that's where we're at. So, you know, it'll, it's definitely going to be up there, but I, I have asked our community advisory board 
both past and present, I've sort of been contacting them about what are some of the issues they want to address. And it's kind of interesting coming back. A lot of people are interested in, in women's issues, reproductive rights, those kind of issues. Um, schools, almost everyone says schools, health, including mental health. So I'm going to kind of try to gauge our are people who we've used as, as advisors to try to guide us on what they would like to see the governor talk about. So, you know, hopefully we'll be talking about that in, in the next few weeks. But I was curious, so Roll Call, you know, Washington, D.C., you know, uh, media had a story out and they were, it was about the influence of Donald Trump, which is, you know, ubiquitous, but it had mentioned the Senate race and it, the writer was, not predicting, but arguing that Kendra Horn, the Democrat, has a real shot at beating Mark Wayne Mullen, current congressman running for that race. And the argument was President Trump, especially with this investigation, who it looks like may really have held on to classified top secret information and broken some laws and rules and everyone hitching their wagon to him is going to be vulnerable if this pans out which mm -hmm. is worse and worse for President Trump. I think roll call's off on that. I think the loyalty to Trump is so strong in this state that, especially in rural areas, that that won't hurt. What do you think? Trans, yeah, the, the transition from Trump to Trumpism, I think that's what they're missing, mm -hmm. is if Trump goes down and it's, let's, let's just say, let's, theoretically throw this out there. They find out the worst of all possible scenarios. Crimes were committed. You know, he's shown himself to be somebody that was, you know, out for himself and money and influence and put the nation's security at risk. The jump to go from Trump to Trumpism is not a hard one to make. Because then you're just talking about changing the lingo a little bit. You're not talking about being loyal to the guy. You're talking about all of those talking points that we see in the state superintendent's race. You know, no more woke ideology, no more this, no more that, all that kind of stuff. We're fighting for this or that, you know, real America type of stuff. It's an easy transition. So I don't really know in a state like Oklahoma that, if Trump, unless there's just something completely heinous that comes out that makes people stop, I don't think that's going to be as big a factor as they think. I do think that Kendra Horn has a puncher's chance just because <clears throat> with Mullen is one of those guys, it's not like he's cultivated, say, a Lankford or Inhofe constituency. It's not like he's got the loyalty of that voters, the loyalty and trust that voters have in a Tom Cole or a Frank Lucas type of thing. He's new coming into this. He's been a firebrand in the second district, but now we're talking about the entire state. So you're talking about the city of Tulsa, fairly diverse voter makeup, uh, the city of Oklahoma City, much more purple than people realize. And that's where Kendra Horn is strong is in Oklahoma City. I mean, she she won the 5th Congressional District before it got gerrymandered. So, you know. Yeah, she does have a um, chance. Yeah, sure. and she has a, has a, um, 
a record to look at. It's not like True. an unknown who's never held office. I mean, she's True. she's been a congresswoman, so um, so I can see where roll call comes to that. I just see Trumpism still very strong. Yeah, I mean the and you know you look at Avery Fricks and Josh Burkeen in the second district. They their whole argument was who loved Trump more, and people came out to vote. You know, so that's that's where I'm not sure some mm -hmm. people understand Oklahoma yet and how that influence affects it. I don't know on some of the people who are just you know into Trumpism and and not necessarily Trump. I do wonder like what where is the line? Trump one time famously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And we kind of laughed it off at the time. But, you know, he's looking at having taken top, I mean, can you imagine any other candidate taking Obama, Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush, any of them taking top secret information and just putting it in their personal basement? I mean, that kind of thing would be, would be a big deal. And so, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of wondering what is the line? Where is the, where is that Richard Nixon? No, you, you've gone too far line. And I don't know where that is yet. So, um, you know, General Petraeus lost uh, quite a bit of his <laughs> uh, privileges, I guess, as a retired military person now, um, active military back then, because he had uh, had some documents that he put out there that you know should not have been out there and a biography that he was working on um you go back to the 60 minute story on reality winner she took one document about um something about russian involvement in in the in the presidential campaign in 2016 one document five years in president so it it does look at like an unequal they're being i know the federal authorities are being very very careful on this because it's extremely sensitive we've seen the knee-jerk reaction from just the search warrant being served what is the line you know if that line is crossed and you see the public just turn on them and say oh wow yeah okay that's enough okay well all bets are off he's in legal peril i suppose but where that line is, I don't even know, because I think in some cases, you're not talking about people that are caring about the detail so much as the sentiment. Right. Know? They're looking at something. Yeah, it's almost like they're they're willing to ignore a certain amount of wrongdoing because he represents a bigger ideal. But that's yeah. a very dangerous point to be in. And that does uh, kind of touch a little bit onto your uh, column this weekend, which I think is um, uh, fabulous. I think it's the the best thing we we, we have will have in the paper. So, um, but it, you touch on, and this has been an interest of yours in a while. And people who don't know you, yeah. know, I mean, you went to Oklahoma Baptist University, so you have some background into this whole area, research area, academic area into white nationalism. You talk about you've talked about dominionism before, and it's fascinating, honestly. But we see. Christian nationalism on the rise and you sort of break it down a little bit which I found helpful um because people are using it as if we should have this you know the Marjorie Taylor Greens are like well I'm a Christian and this is a nation so we should all be Christian nationalists and we live in Oklahoma in a place where a lot of people identify as Christians so 
you know, what got you thinking about this? And and there, and I think you even told me there are whole genres of, of you know, there's a whole genre of research to try to, try to sum it up in a one column uh, Sunday is ambitious. So I, I imagine this will probably be a theme you bring up every once in a while, but what did you want to get across this weekend? And what made you think about this particular topic right now? Um, let me first start with a little bit of a preface, because most of the people who are writing about Christian nationalism to kind of break it down, analyze it and weigh its, you know, merits or faults, they're coming from the outside, okay? With me, you mentioned I went to OBU. I've been, you know, a Christian since I was 15 years old, you know, did the OBU thing. I was, you know, did Sunday school teaching in the church for years, went on these mission trips and stuff like that. So when you're talking about evangelicals, Southern Baptists fit in that thing. And, you know, I was in a Southern Baptist church for a really, really long time. So, I don't want people to think, well, this is just another outsider bashing Christians. Now, this is coming from inside the house this time because I've seen this develop over decades now. So the reason why I wanted to do this is we needed to define it for the reasons that you just said is people don't really have an understanding what nationalism is. Nationalism is not patriotism. Those are two different things. And Christian nationalism is a very specific type of nationalism. So when you're talking about the definition of what nationalism is, it's basically defining what it means to be a part of a nation. And traditionally that means race, land or territory, language, belief, those kinds of things. Very, uh, the United States' founding has a lot of roots in nationalism. The wars that uh, occurred in World War I and World War II had extremely high nationalistic uh, surges in them that, you know, gave us quite a bit of conflict in that time. When you're talking about Christian nationalism, now you're talking about defining what it is to be an American and also saying one of those things is being Christian. So the United States is a majority Christian country, but we know that Christianity is not the only belief system in the country. So already we've got conflict. We have conflict with our laws going down to the Constitution, you know, et cetera. But Christian nationalism is not a new thing. It's been with us for at least many decades. And it takes all kinds of different turns and stuff. And it was a fascinating thing to me because I never figured that this would be something that would be prominent. The reality is it has been prominent for a long time, mostly behind the scenes. And it is becoming more out front now. I think just because people are emboldened by it. We started talking about nationalism and who's a nationalist, he's a populist and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I'm a nationalist. I'm all about America. I'm a Christian and I like America and all that stuff. So, yeah, I guess I am a Christian nationalist. You know, maybe, maybe not. But if we go down that path... um, You're you're not making room for others. And and I've always heard... Growing, oh, and you've heard this too. You know, 
America was founded on Christian values. It's, and I've always rejected that. Like, no, some of the founders were Christian, but many weren't. So, you know, but that, that takes hold. But, you know, you make a point in there that I've always felt strongly about. And I was raised Catholic, had a Southern Baptist dad. I've been around, I mean, all of it. But you say this is bad for the faith too. And historically going back from the beginning of time, whenever a faith gets wrapped up in nationalism, it never ends well for the faith that, you know, to not allow for freedom. I think I forgot the line you used in there that, you know, forced religion is a dead one. Yeah. That And that's what, when I hear people talk about, we want to teach our Christian values in schools, I'm like, whoa, what Christian, because that's a pretty strong thing. And I'm like, well, my Christian values may not be yours. You know, it's, it's that kind of thinking, but, you know, talk a little bit about that, about this idea of, of how, how it harms people of faith or, or harms the faith when people try to do that. Two things stick out to me with this, and they are very serious in that case. And yeah, I did say that, you know, a forced faith is a forced faith is a dead faith. Because I mean, if you don't when you come to faith in something, whether it's Christianity or some kind of other religion, this is something you wrestle with. Um, on a secular level, you would say this is someone who has wrestled with these ideas and has decided to follow this. On a spiritual side, you would say that, you know, they you've responded to a calling from God and you have met him there and whatnot. If you're telling somebody, this is how it is, you must believe this way, there's no connection here to anything except for just being a, a, a different kind of a law that you have to follow. That's not faith. That's just something that someone is using as a power tool over you. But the second thing specifically to Christianity, and I'm not saying that other religions aren't like this either, but Christianity is not a religion that is tied to any nation. And I say that um, reading scriptures right out of the Bible. You know, Christianity is seen as a universal religion. It is not tied to any country. It is not tied to any kind of nationality, any kind of language or culture or race. It is a universal religion. The To tie it to what it means to be an American, if you are a Christian, I'll just quote what the International Mission Board from the Southern Baptist Convention said, and it said that it was one of the three great heresies of American Christianity. I didn't say that. The missionaries did. They might know something about Christianity. So I'm just saying, yeah, maybe pump the brakes a little bit on this because what I have seen just from history, from what we're seeing today, that if you can legally use the name of God to justify what you're doing, it is a wide open door to abuse and potential great harm to people so be careful folks well and we've seen that historically we've seen that everything i mean preachers used it to justify slavery yep Uh, people used it to justify segregation you know we're still seeing the bible used to oppress people and that's when i say your christian values may very well may not be mine because of that how 
how we view that. So, but it also leads into that extremism that I'm particularly concerned with. And we did, I did see there were some, and we had extremism on the ballot in yes, it, and it, and there were some candidates that, that got voted out or got voted, mm-hmm. you know, out of the, the primary. And I was glad to see that because when you say things like Jews are evil, that's straight up hate speech. That's not Christianity. Sorry. And let's I'm be clear with that on that particular candidate, Jaron Jackson. Yeah. His, his campaign theme was, I am a Christian nationalist. Yeah. And his platform was Christianity, not communism. So I'm not saying that everyone claiming to be a Christian nationalist was is a frothing anti-Semite. But sometimes that's where it leads. Right. And because once again, and he, when you're talking about nationalism, you are trying to define it and it is exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what that leads to at times is who gets excluded becomes the other. Mm-hmm. The other often gets blamed for things that are the easy target. Mm-hmm. I don't think we want that in the United States. That's not something that we are supposed to be doing if you look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So. Well, and you see that with the LGBTQ community. There was another candidate in the Oklahoma City area that yeah, he that. said the Bible says we can stone gay people, you know. So I don't think we want to do that either. So he luckily was the voters saw through that too. But it's going to have to take people pointing that out and calling people out on that to say, look, this is, you, you, and we've heard candidates come in. The first thing they tell us is we're conservative Christians. And well, that's great, but what does that have to do with getting my light fixed outside my house? Because that's really the job you're signing up for. What does that have to do with, you know, funding, you know, prisons or whatever? So, um, but anyway, it's a really good column. I I want everyone who's who's listening to this to read it because I think that it'll make you think. Um, but you know, so. yeah, there there were two there were two editorials that we have coming out. I don't think we've had it out yet, but we have two congressman that we thought said two very wise things. One was Tom Cole, who I, in, you, I think you actually read about or watched the town hall meeting where he was, it was a phone town hall meeting where he urged people who were getting, they were getting upset about this, the Trump search warrant and they were angry and yeah. he urged patience. Now he came out and said, you know, he was concerned that but he was concerned that he wanted more information not that it was bad or they were not doing their job but he just said when you do something that significant there needs to be more information i can agree with that but what he urged was to wait i mean remind me what what exactly he said well he didn't he said basically don't do anything rash yeah because people after the uh, search warrant was served at mar-a-lago started doing very rash things and saying very rash things and we know where that leads you know, for every, I wrote about it last week saying, you know, for every thousand people putting videos on TikTok calling for civil war, you know, 999 of them are, power, are, are posers, but that one guy might just be your next Tim McVeigh. We don't need that, for God's sake. Yeah. So, so. I, that was appreciative that he did that. And just to clarify, I didn't listen in on it, but I did read about the town hall where he said that. So, you know, I'm not I wasn't wild about anybody from our delegation just flying off the handle saying, oh, raid, outrageous, 
we are an explanation. I was more like, hey, you need to chill out and listen for a little bit before you do this. But I give him credit for taking a step back and urging some calm because we need that right now. Well, and I kind of wonder if he's one of the, and I've always thought of Tom Cole as, as being a smart guy, a reasonable yeah. guy. And I kind of wonder if he's like a lot of people concerned about well, what are you finding? Well, what has been taken? What what was the intent? I mean, if he had top secret classified information, what was your intent with this? Were you planning on displaying it in a museum? Were you? I mean, there's a lot of questions that come up. So I think that his restraint is is well received. Yeah. And then the other was uh, Congressman uh, Frank Lucas, who he's been in representing Oklahoma for almost 30 years. I mean, I think he's seen it all. But he um, and his district has changed so much too. He's, yeah. I think, representing parts of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and pretty much everything out to the uh, to the west. But he spoke about where he thinks the divides are, like the the bitter divides in Congress. And this was during a town hall uh, meeting in Manford that reporter Randy Crable attended. And he puts the blame squarely on campaign finance reform changes. Yeah, things, and he voted against uh, the uh, McCain. Reingold? Feingold, Feingold, sorry, Feingold, because he thought it would make it worse. And he ended up being right because that led to Citizens United Supreme Court decision that said corporations are people with First Amendment rights. And that kicked open the door to unlimited amounts of campaign contributions from corporations, from wealthy people. And that it also led to these dark money packs yep. and the and these super packs. And he said, what you have now are his colleagues, he goes, many of his colleagues are more loyal to the super PACs, to the, the small wealthy people who will donate unlimited amounts of money. And it kind of funnels through an LLC and goes, it kind of winds around. We don't know who's funding these, but there, but now you have people in Congress who they don't have town halls like Tom Cole and Frank Lucas. They just don't need them, don't want them. If they do, it's a controlled audience where it's people that have been chosen or they'll only speak to, you know, a chamber of commerce somewhere. They, they're not, they, they don't, they don't have, and he even said they'll do polls. They don't do, you know, surveys of what their constituents want. And so he, his comments were about if there is a way and it would, it would be hard because the Supreme Court consistently says campaign contributions are First Amendment speech. But if there's a way to rein that in, to do away with the super PACs and to do away with the dark money. Now, I think that the money will still flow in, honestly. I think there's, I don't know if we can pull that back, but we can at least require some transparency. I mean, we should at least find out who dumped a bunch of money into, you know, a school board race last February, or yeah. who was opposing Connie Dodson in the last days of an election for Tulsa City Council. I mean, we don't know who's funding this. So that's what he got at. And I, so we pointed out that he's right. Now, he did vote against one of the problems I think Congress does, and they do this with a lot of things. Their measures are too big. So he voted against the, the For the People Act, which was a campaign finance reform act. But that act also included some voting rights measures that the Republicans weren't on board with. It included some instructions on gerrymandering 
And so when you put all these different things into one package, then it, it's hard to get bipartisan support. But you kind of, I've always wondered like, okay, well, what if you just looked at campaign finance reform? Nothing else, just we want to get transparency on who donates to campaigns. Would that pass? And I think for for Frank Lucas, he probably would. But it's when they start adding in all this other stuff that that happens with everything in Congress. But but we kind of yeah. gave him credit for that. So I wrote about this weekend. I think we'll talk about it more next week, which is higher education. TCC has graduated uh, more. They gave out more diplomas and certifications in, in its history this past year. And I write about some of the things that TCC has done and how they invested that should be sort of lessons for other, you know, places and people. But I, you know, we have this whole student loan forgiveness issue that's popped up, but I think maybe that's a, a topic for another week. What do you think, Bob? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a big one. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I strangely have a feeling that. You, I, I saw your Twitter this morning. It. And so if people want to know what Bob thinks, go to his Twitter account and uh, he'll, he'll, I agree with him on, on, on those points. So, but we can talk about that next week, but in ending this, we always try to end this on a, on a somewhat of a high note. My daughter turns 15 and all the things that a 15 year old girl brings to it, to the house, uh, a little bit of drama, a little bit of, you know, happiness. She wants a record player, like an actual, a record player. And then my son this morning was listening and I didn't make a big deal about it. But on his, his, the two songs back and forth on his, on his list were Hungry Heart by Springsteen and then U2's um, Sunday Bloody Sunday. And I'm like, everything is coming back. All the stuff that I loved in the 80s are cool again. We're going to have record players. We're going to have U2 and Bono. Oh man, yeah, that brings back memories. I mean, I think my I think my kids are listening to the same music at their age that you were. <laughs> weren't you listening to you too when you were absolutely like, between hey, fifteen man, and eighteen? First, the first four or five albums that you two put out, yeah, I had them and I played them on a turntable on my stereo in my red bedroom. You betcha, I did. Yeah, that's the only now that there are some turntables that have Bluetooth, so they can listen to it on their on their earbuds but like that is the thing about yeah i can see where my parents were a little irritated when i'd have it on on 11 you know kind of <laughs> so. yeah yeah my dad gave me an earful one time when i was blasting out some pretty hard rock after school he comes home from work and basically filled the entire house with uh, some pretty pretty good hard rock but <laughs> you want to know the influence of you two on me what outside of just really enjoying especially those first four albums. Bono created the mullet. When He'll you look never at the, that the fire album, he had a glorious mullet. And I go into the, the gal that was cutting my hair and said, <laughs> I want that. So, yes. Yeah. I, I, I didn't that. like that coming back. That came back, not loving that. So, you yeah, know, but again, I, I don't want to be the old parent that says cut your hair. So I'm just going to let it work its It'll it'll fade away. So you know, I'll make a compromise. You can get the mullet, just don't perm it in the back. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Let's yeah, not do that. That's, see, that's that's a bridge too far. It, well, you know, luckily I can say I'm not paying for the perm, and they're like, okay. <laughs> so right, yeah, hey. you, know, you have to get a job for that. So, but anyway, okay. we're gonna have a little a record party at our house. So, um, any last words, Bob? Oh gosh. Um, 
I'd say probably the best thing I, you could do right now after a week like we have had and everything like that is just breathe deep, find a quiet spot, and just take a moment. Because you don't need to do that when you're when we're doing our things right now the way it is the way news the news cycle is and everybody's all worked up about stuff you're going to need to find those moments of calm zen peace whatever you want to call it so go do that do that to the uh the lovely strains of the unforgettable fire album from youtube you'll be happy you were you were thinking what i was thinking like you can get you can find zen in your old record player that's what i'm absolutely go do that go do that and uh oh also um i know we're not going to talk about that here because this isn't really our wheelhouse but yes me along with 10 million other people watched house of the dragon sunday night i did too as much grief as game of thrones got for it and there is still a raging appetite for all things westeros don't care what you say well okay i had to watch it monday because our app kept crashing and apparently we got online it was, there were so many people watching it that those using the app to watch it, the HBO Max app, it just kept getting hung up. In it. But it was great. So now I'm there. Okay. We're on the same wavelength there. So, oh, and Reservation Dogs. Oh my gosh. This last week was hilarious. Yeah. And my friends that go off to like Indian conferences, I have a whole different view of what happens at those Indian conferences. And I'm not going to let anyone, I'm not going to say more than that. Just watch the show. Best show on TV. So along with <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Adios.